Hey everyone, welcome to Birth Podcast. I'm Ash. Today we're going to talk about domestic violence, and I'm going to introduce you to Jess Hill. She is a colleague and a friend who I met in 2012 on my first trip to Lebanon, and I stayed in a flat that she shared with her partner David. They would later go back to Australia, and over the past several years, Jess has been writing, studying, examining, interviewing survivors of domestic violence. And she's also been looking at what causes perpetrators to be violent in the first place. She recently wrote a book called See What You Made Me Do, where she dissects the relationships of narcissism, toxicity, and violence in the home, the judicial system, and the community support that is and is not in place. I want to get right into our discussion, but before I do, I want to forewarn you, we are going into very dicey territory, and if you are someone who has survived domestic abuse, I want you to know that we are with you, that we hear your voice. But what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to look and examine a little bit more at the side of the perpetrator, and what happens in their mindset, and what Jess has been examining for the past several years. So, it could be triggering. However, if you feel comfortable, please keep going, because I would love for you to be part of this discussion. Whether you've been a survivor, whether you've been a perpetrator, whether you're someone who has worked in the social or legal context, this is a really important discussion. So, listen in. So, you have a book out, and it's called See What You Made Me Do, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Yeah, so the book is basically a an analysis of the phenomenon of domestic abuse. Uh, it's it's everything from how it looks and feels um, through to how the justice system responds or doesn't, as the case may be, um, how it's dealt with in the family law courts, and what we're actually able to do to confront and reduce the statistics. So uh, essentially, I wrote it because. I felt like at that time it was, you know, Rachel Louise Snyder has come out with a book, No Visible Bruises in the States. But at the time I was writing this, um, that hadn't come out. And as she says in her introduction, there had been no book written by a journalist or just someone writing for a general audience that looked at the phenomenon of domestic abuse. And so I just thought that, you know, it's been 40 something years since the first shelters were opened. And since we finally got a term for, for what it was when husbands controlled and, um, and were violent towards their partners. Why don't we have a book about that? Um, why aren't we writing for the general audience? This is such an enormous social issue and it shows up in every single person's life, whether they know it or not. Um, some people, many, many people have experienced it. Um, you know, we're looking at figures like one in three, one in four women, one in, um, well, I know certainly in Australia, one in 16 men, um, you know, certainly for children in Australia, it's about one in four again. So there are just so many people walking around who have experienced domestic abuse, either as children or as adults, who I felt were still fundamentally misunderstood. I spent about a year reporting on it. And then off the back of that reporting, I got asked to write this book. And part of me felt reluctant and resistant and I didn't know how I was going to deal with it emotionally because I was already feeling really in a very dark and difficult place after reporting on it um, exclusively for a year. Um, and, but I, I just thought this, this absolutely has to be written. 
I just cannot have another victim survivor come to me and say, I feel so alone because nobody understands what happened to me or why I made the choices I made. And it's like, this can't stand. There has to be something for the general public that shows them what it looks and feels like and why people do things the way they do. I'm curious why you use the word phenomenon, though. I guess phenomenon in terms of looking at the entire, um, the entire social issue of domestic abuse. So people talk about, talk about it being a private issue behind closed doors. And my, my thing is it's not a private issue. It starts private but it often ends up very public um, in the sense that it, it you know, often in, in relationships that have ended, it, the abuse continues through the legal system um, and especially through the family law system where there are children involved. Uh, but also the fact that actually publicly we see the destruction that is wrought by domestic abuse in rising um, levels of violent crime. We see it in rising levels of homelessness, especially that of women and children. We see it in rising levels of women in prison. So all of this stuff is happening in in the public sphere. It's impacting each and every one of our lives. And it is not something that just happens between two people or inside a family. When you hear the word, you often think phenomena is something that's almost new or something that's surprising, but it's almost, it's basically, it's hiding in plain sight. It is right in front of us and it is everywhere. And so, you know, as you kept going through the next, I don't know, four years that you didn't anticipate this taking and through the research, one of the interesting things that I, I know that you have talked about discovering was the element of perpetrators of abuse. Of course, they often probably come from abuse themselves, but there's no space for them to to heal. That doesn't mean accountability shouldn't mm. exist, but yep. it doesn't seem like there's a, there isn't a pathway to healing for them. Can mm. you talk a little bit about how you sort of got to that space and what that research and what that ended up looking like for your book? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because a lot of what, so the, I really wanted to turn that old question on its head that, that, you know, obsession we have with why does she stay and turn it into or why does he do it. Um, and just for your listeners as well, I do have a chapter on when women use violence in their relationships. So it's not just about men using violence, but I just, I just kind of, I, I use the gendered binary of men, um, men's violence against women because it is the most destructive and dangerous t- kind um, in terms of homicide. So um, excuse me to anyone experiencing same sex violence or male victims out there. I absolutely, you know, acknowledge your experience and, and often there's a lot of similarities. Um, so, but so what I wanted to do is really sort of look at the perpetrator. Why do they do it? Now, when I first started really asking that question, I, I don't know, I confronted a lot of really difficult personal um, emotions around that. Partly it was I had a, a sense of loyalty to victim survivors um, and I wondered whether in trying to explain the behaviour of perpetrators, I was going to let them down, that I was almost going to betray them. And I also had kind of quite a lot of rage towards these perpetrators, hearing what they would do to um, their partners and their children uh, you know, part of me just wanted to line them up and shove them all off a cliff, you know? Um, and it's, and so I really had to push back against all of those sort of instincts that I was having around it and say in and one line that I read from a clinical psychiatrist called James Gilligan, um, he's done a lot of work with 
violent men in prisons, um, including domestic violence perpetrators, grew up with domestic violence himself. And, um, and he said, you know, just condemning domestic violence is about as effective as condemning heart disease. So unless we understand why this is happening, we won't get a, an understanding of how to stop it or how to fix it or how to cure it. So I kind of had this paradigm shift in my own head. I started to get a sense of, well, how have researchers, you know, got a sense of the patterns within perpetrators um, and looked at the difference between what is like, you know, quite a, what you might think of as like a, a, as a sociopathic kind of perpetrator, very cold, controlling, dominating, not particularly emotionally connected to their partner, but just want someone to control as, as different to the paranoid codependent um, abuser who's actually like terrified that their partner's going to leave them and expose them as, you know, defective and as unworthy of love. And so looks for clues of betrayal everywhere and is absolutely convinced that their partner is cheating on them or is, you know, is doing something to betray or disrespect them and that they, they develop this whole system of control to sort of to, to defend themselves against that. So I started sort of getting a sense of like, okay, even though we don't necessarily categorize men in one column or another because they're individuals and they're complex people, there are patterns that emerge that we start to see sort of showing up in, in various people who use violence and control. And then one of the most really illuminating um, sort of theories that I found was the theory of humiliated fury, which was developed by Helen Block Lewis, who is a psychologist um, from Brooklyn, uh, a, psycho a psychoanalyst actually, in the 70s. She was totally pioneering because she was a woman as a psychoanalyst in the 70s, so that was pioneering on its own, but she was also one of the first psychoanalysts to really um, look at shame. Shame is a, an incredibly powerful emotion that underpins so many different emotions that we sort of mistake it for. It underpins a lot of anger. It underpins a lot of depression. It underpins a lot of anxiety. And But we often don't notice shame for what it is because we're almost so ashamed of shame that we can barely um, speak about it. And so Helen Block Lewis's idea of humiliated fury was this feeling of unbearable pain and shame that we want to dispel immediately. In order to dispel shame immediately, this type of fury rises and it seeks to overwhelm the feeling of shame with a feeling of power. When I've talked to magistrates about that, judges, they've just, it's like something's clicked in and they're like, that's what we see in our courtrooms every day. That's incredibly interesting to me too, because, you know, I've sort of started unpacking some of maybe a similar idea, but with different words or different language that, you know, violence really doesn't come out of necessarily a hatred, but violence comes out of a desperation. So that mm. desperation for a power and control over whatever the narrative is that they're telling themselves, you know, and Brene Brown kind of talks about the story I'm telling myself in my head is, and, and so, essentially that desperation sort of leads to um, the demand of a particular outcome. And for somebody who might be more prone to say a physical violence or uh, maybe a verbal violence. And, and you know, certainly I, I have seen this in, in men and women, which is, you know, I think the um, statistics are even uh, higher, I think in the US for, for, you know, perpetrators who can be men and women or men who go through it. And the, and the idea is, is that, that, that 
they then go to the most extreme behavior that maybe that was example for them, maybe that was given to them, maybe that was offered to them in their own wounding because they have no other way of expression and they take it out on their partner, their child, their whoever that person is that is abused in that space. So it's almost as if when I hear you talk about humiliated fury, I almost hear someone who's so damn desperate that they're going to the ultimate extreme which then becomes their violence exactly yeah and that you know there's this i guess sort of turning around the whole idea of this like you know monstrous perpetrator towards someone who's actually like deeply afraid um Mm -hmm. who is you know who's deeply afraid of either losing control or of being abandoned being exposed you know like people talk a lot about narcissistic personalities um, who are abusive and, you know, shame is absolutely at the heart of the narcissistic personality. In fact, they are so afraid and uh, of their own feelings of shame that they build a firewall between that and the world. And they basically create a totally artificial personality. Um, And this is what really freaks a lot of people out when they start to discover that their partner is, 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 has got that profile is that behind the mask, it's like, there's nothing there. It's like they're hollowed out. Um, and so these narcissistic personalities are projecting this personality of, of winning, of charm, of charisma, of anything that can cover the defectiveness that they, you know, deep, deep down believe that they have, um, which could be that they were told that they were defective their entire life, or it could be just because, you know, they've picked up on society's message that they're entitled to be in power, but have not been able to establish that power. You see that a lot in um, the incel communities on Reddit and, you know, those subcultures where it's like guys who, you know, Elliot Roger, who, who um, did that mass shooting, that first incel mass shooting in California. And for those who don't know, incel is involuntary celibate. And these, these, these guys who see themselves as too ugly to ever have a partner, um, almost too ugly to live. Um, they're so ashamed. But at the same time, they feel this level of just massively overblown entitlement mm. where they actually equate sex with as a human right, a, a, the same way that, you know, we need food, we need sex, and that actually raping somebody is just the same as stealing bread if you're hungry. What the, the unique, I guess, combination that you see in domestic abuse particularly is this you know, definitely sense of fear, shame, um, et cetera, trauma, grief, but it's matched with uh, um, entitlement. In, an, in the States, an amazing, amazing woman, Ellen Pence, who headed up the Duluth model, which is, was a groundbreaking model. They, they came up with the power control wheel, which is very influential in domestic violence research. She really, she started working with women who were using violence in their relationships as well. And she was like, whether it's a man or a woman using violence or control, the basic belief that has generated under patriarchy that you are entitled to have power over another person rather than you know, living in balance and that, you know, what I do to you, I do to myself, all those sorts of more indigenous understandings of being. Um, But European patriarchy absolutely landed the idea of entitlement to power over and that that is, you know, men get rewarded for displaying that behaviour more than women do, um, but women still 
as anyone will tell you who's, you know, worked under a toxic female manager, there's where women are rewarded for it. They are just as guilty of that behavior as men are. Um, in the home, that's not what women are rewarded for. They're not, they're, you know, there's all sorts of horrific names for women who exert power in the home, um, whereas men are almost expected to be in power in the home. So you can see why there's that disparity. Coming back to this idea that maybe we all have a little bit of violence in us, but most of us, the majority of us may not enact it. Yeah. What would you say to, I mean, there's a lot of talk around narcissism right now, a lot. Yeah. And, and there's sort of this idea that there's two things happening. One, I'm seeing there's a, a, a division that's happening between, oh, well, this person's a narcissist and this person's an empath. Yeah, yeah. One's good and bad. And I actually kind of see both of them as opposite sides of the same coin. But yeah. the other part of the, the, the conversation that I'm seeing is, is that, well, they can't be cured. You just have to sort of uh, walk away from them or yeah. they have to be punished, which I understand that as a society, we need to have rules and laws set in place. But at the same time, punishment reward systems can be very manipulative to the point where, again, there's no healing for the perpetrator. So yes. in what you have studied and the people that you have spoken to and experienced, what are some pathways do you think, or in your opinion, that, um, that, that someone who perpetrates violence, uh, verbal, physical, et cetera, can find a way to heal, to become an upstanding human being, to create sort of reconciliation with themselves and with mm. the relationships or their, or their community? What, what are some things that you've come across in that way? Well, there needs to be a really um, convincing reason for them to do the incredibly hard work that is required to change their behavior and, and change their habituation. Like remembering that, like think about the sorts of things that maybe we don't like so much about ourselves, how difficult it is to change, especially as you get older, you know, <laughs> like there are some things in my relationship, the way that I, um, the, the kind of contact I make with friends or the things I do in my intimate relationship that sometimes feels impossible to change. And I know it comes from my own upbringing um, and what I've, you know, the, my habituation. So you're talking about like lifelong patterns for a lot of these perpetrators. That is really hard work to shift. You know, it's like taking your skin off. Um, so the, what we need to urge people to actually do that work rather than just to carry on doing what's easy, even if it is actually making them miserable, even if they don't know that they're miserable um, because they don't know that there's any other way to be um, is you need to have a really strong justice deterrent. And what I, one of the most encouraging sort of models of reducing domestic abuse, but also really like dealing with the issues of the perpetrator is um, in High Point, North Carolina, and they used a model called focused deterrence, which had been used on gun violence really successfully. It was sort of seen as the only thing that works to reduce, especially youth gun violence. And essentially what they're doing is they're, they're basically getting every part of the community that, that works, that, that has contact with gun violence, whether it be, you know, a community group, whether it be the justice system, the federal prosecutor, FBI, parole, you know, all the rest of it. And then also drug and alcohol, you know, all these different sort of um, areas, they would all come together and work together to deliver messages to these people um, to say, look, we can see you, we know what you're doing. And now we're closing all the loopholes that you used to exploit to get away with this. But if you can change and if you can stop your offending, 
we are here to help you. We are here to help you with counseling, with, you know, um, drug and alcohol treatment, if that's what you need, with employment issues, if that's what you need, you know, that, that basically they offer this carrot and stick, but where the carrot and the stick are both as powerful as each other. So when they, when in high point, they decided, why don't we try this with domestic violence perpetrators? What they found was that by increasing the visibility by taking the responsibility out of the hands of victims to keep themselves safe. And by basically having the justice system step in and say, we are now like considering this the number one public safety threat. We're going to deal with it as though it is as, you know, as important and as threatening as terrorism to public safety. Um, if we can't get you on domestic violence charges, then if you continue to offend, we'll find some other way. Like, you know, the FBI sent a message to them basically saying that, we will, we will buy guns or dope from you. Like we've got all the budget in the world to do this. You know, we are going to make you stop offending. But then also having the community come and say, we love you. We respect you. We want you to come back into the community. We don't want you to be in jail. We're, this is not about arresting you. This is not about destroying your life. This is about giving you a choice. And the choice is between if you keep offending We'll find out about it, not even necessarily from your partner, but from people who we've enlisted to make sure that you don't offend, um, neighbours, friends, etc. We will punish you to the full extent of the law and beyond. Um, so if you don't make the rational choice to attend to your behaviour, to take up the opportunity to change, then your life will be ruined. But look at the alternative. Like the, it change is possible. Repeat victimisation was down. And people felt more confident in contacting police because they thought police are really going to take this seriously. So for me, it's like with narcissistic types, you know, yeah, sometimes you're going to bang your head up against the wall, trying to get them into a group who are talking about their behavior and trying to get them to reform, you know, and trying to get them to develop compassion for their partners or even their children. But if you can sort of give them this rational choice where it's like, you're not going to get away with any, anywhere more. Why don't we try to do something differently? <laughs> and right. you're going to need to put a lot of effort into this. Which brings me to, to sort of a, um, a different question in, in that we talk about increasing visibility. And when you involve the justice system, obviously there might be ways to do that. But when it comes to maybe social groups where because maybe not every perpetrator is going to be caught or not every narcissist is going to be obvious, right? There are different types of narcissism, people maybe who are a little more hidden about it because of their own perspective personality traits, they're, um, you know, Dr. Uh, Ramanita Vasala, she talks about the covert narcissist as someone who sort of is able to hide themselves and be charming and, and, and sort of work mm. the crowd. But, you know, when they go home, they're, they're far more sort of violent in their actions and words, whether they're physically violent or not, but they, they become sort of the, the, the narcissistic person. And so when it comes to um, those who have been abused, who are on the receiving end of this, as well as for the perpetrator, maybe in more social circles where the justice system doesn't catch it. How do we create a way to, mm, how do we take away the stigma so mm. that there's a way to increase visibility within mm. friend groups, social groups, community groups, where maybe the justice system may or may not reach? Mm, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, it's very difficult. The, um, and, and the justice system doesn't reach the vast majority. It's still very much in the minority of what, of what that reaches. It's difficult because, you know, I guess that some ways of, of, of getting, especially perpetrators, to reform their behaviour 
can actually be, especially if they've had children, alerting them to how it's impacting their children. It's often actually for guys um, and for and for women too, the realisation of what it's doing to the kids that actually is the motivation for change. And even still, they have to have a very skilled counsellor or, or therapist to help work with them through this and to and to really hold them accountable at the same time as working through all of their personal issues people what i've tried to do with the book is really try to get people to realize that this is not just something that happens to other people um get them to have a bit of insight into how they struggle with issues of power and entitlement in their relationships so in when you talk about removing the stigma it's like I think for a long time, because, you know, we've had these stereotypes about domestic abuse, about it being something that happens to poor people. We've had the, you know, classic posters of the woman cowering in the corner with the bruises, um, the monster, or, you know, the ogre with the clenched fist. All of those images, um, I guess, were useful for a time to really evoke public sympathy, but have reached the end of their usefulness because a lot of people who experience domestic abuse don't, identify with either the cowering victim or the towering ogre um, and also it stigmatizes them to the rest of the community the resistance and resilience of a lot of um, victim survivors who go through this who many of whose stories i mean it's just amazing talking to some of these people you like the strategic thinking that went into surviving, you know, both physically, psychologically, into making sure their children survived um, or into, you know, into coping with the legal system. It's, you know, in, in Indigenous cultures, um, thinking especially of one Native American story, when, um, when this particular woman was raped, you know, she, as a survivor, she was venerated as a medicine woman and as someone who had particular power our, our culture has stigmatized survivors as being somehow like tarnished, you know, damaged to blame, yeah. etc. And that is just so ridiculous. It's so much a part of the problem Agreed. instead of seeing that they just have like some of the most incredible survival skills, even people who have not covered themselves in glory as victim survivors. And let's face it, a lot of victims are not, perfect people you know they are people who have struggled with their own stuff around power they may have been terrible to their children even you know there's all sorts of things that go on um but as individuals trying to survive a what can feel like an unsurvivable situation they have all exhibited types of resistance and resilience and i just think that the more that we highlight that while not stereotyping them as heroes necessarily, although there are absolutely heroes there, um, but just looking at that post-traumatic growth, resilience, development, survival, um, that's what I think will sort of reduce the stigma from the victim side. Um, it's also why I, sort of, I, I use the hyphenated term victim survivor for people who've come out of relationships. And, and um, you've, you've heard me refrain actually from using the word because I feel like there's such a stigma that gets attached to this idea of victim. People go, oh God, I'm not a victim, I'm not a victim. And so then they don't even really admit what's happening to them because exactly. they don't wanna be seen in that state of weakness. And they, you know, and it's, it's about, I mean, I, I've told somebody before, it's about, you know, making victim into victorious. And so mm. the idea, you know, you tell the story about the indigenous woman being made into this blessed medicine woman 
is an incredible space that I think we can, we can learn from to sort of deepen our relationship with ourselves and how we then make ourselves visible as well as the circumstance for which we are invisible, which then ultimately holds the perpetrator accountable. Um, yeah. I'm kind of curious, as you were going through this process, uh, you and your partner, David, obviously worked on a lot of things together, probably had a lot of conversations. Um, mm. I've heard you talk about the fact that he has actually worked with um, men who have, have struggled with these things. How do you feel that this process deepened and maybe edified your relationship? Obviously, mm. the two of you have had a, a, a very beautiful and, and fluid opportunity um, to study all of this, but how do you feel like the conversations around all of this maybe deepened things between the two of you? I feel like, gosh, we just had thousands of hours of conversations about this and it's conversations that would like verge on debates to verge on arguments to verge on, you know, cause there's a lot of hairy stuff, you know, around entitlement and around male privilege and, and around, you know, stuff that is invisible to men and invisible to women about our behavior. And, uh, and we would contest a lot of territory, you know, um, but it also, I think highlighted so much about our own, power, you know, imbalances or, or power struggles in our relationship, our own relationship to gender norms and what was expected, especially when we had a kid, you know, because even the most gender equal couple will find that there are certain biological necessities, you know, when you have a baby that, that can do away with all of your best intentions. Over time, we, we learned how to be better partners um, through really discussing and getting clear on on what we expected and what was what was okay for us and what wasn't okay for us and what our what our limitations were and we have to keep working on ourselves and working on our relationship again that is something that was really fundamental especially in my study of um, indigenous Australians this whole idea that like interpersonal relationships are things that need work. And i personally have resisted that notion for a long time. I just was like, can't it just happen automatically? Like I've said, I love you. We've gotten married. That's enough. Uh, but you know, indigenous Australians, one of the most in, like enduring features of that culture that really stood out to a number of anthropologists was how much work they put into maintaining intimate relationships and developing them and sorting through all those, you know, all the stuff that comes up around power. This is all central to how humans relate. And it, it requires ongoing attention. So I think that in, our, in learning so much about how relationships operate and how the worst parts of ourselves can be exacerbated in relationship and then how to forgive each other, you know, how to, how to have a, an argument, like basically learning how to argue. A lot of what we did was deal with our attachment issues of, you know, his anxious attachment, my avoidant attachment issues, <laughs> um, you know, and through this book, we were just able to get much more visibility, even though the book itself became a burden. It was very difficult. It was, you know, it was the cause of a lot of arguments, but overall the learning was just, you know, irreplaceable. So perhaps maybe it created just a space of like healing some things that maybe you guys hadn't really addressed or thought about before um, yeah. that you started. It kind of brought up the hard work that you both needed to do um, yeah. in, a, in a situation like that, which really any couple or family would need to do that is going through these these kinds of spaces. How, how does somebody start with the hard conversation? And then I mm. guess it's just, is there anything that you, you feel you need to add in this space? If you know someone who you're worried about, who you feel like 
their partner is being unduly controlling or where you feel like you're not seeing that person so much anymore in a way that feels very connected to certain expectations that the partner has or whether you feel like the person that you know is starting to change in ways that are detrimental and that that has something to do with their partner. Um, I think that the first step really is to open up conversation about it, maybe notice some things that have changed, but never condemn the partner. Don't condemn the partner, condemn the behaviour. So the thing is that the people who are going through domestic abuse will often be very defensive of their partner. They are being basically almost colonised into a state where they feel their number one loyalty is to the perpetrator. Um, loyalty is literally trained into, especially victims of coercive control. So if you are trying to displace that person or as said, like condemn that person, you're going to come up against a lot of resistance. So the more to the point is to condemn the behavior, like to say, like, I don't like the way that this happens. I don't like the way that so-and-so does this, but to say, I don't like so-and-so, I don't, they are this or that. You're just going to come up against you know, a lot of resistance. The, the next thing is to really, the, what happens so often is that we we kind of hang our friendships on the ability of our friends to change for the better, to give up bad habits. Um, and in domestic abuse situations, a lot of it's, it takes a long time for someone experiencing abuse to, to actually recognize it for it being abuse. And it's very important that friends don't abandon them because actually what by abandoning them and by ceasing contact, you're doing the perpetrators work for them because, you know, the, one of the most important parts of domestic abuse that, that keeps it in place is isolation. Point is just to keep that line open and to basically try to talk to that person, offer advice without judgment, offer just presence. Um, that is so important and just, basically make that offer that at any time of day or night, something happens that you'll be there, you know, and that's not a small commitment to make. I know what that means, you know, help people through suicide. A lot of people have, you know, helped others through suicidal um, times or depressive times. It's not a small commitment, but if that person is close to you, honestly, it is the difference between that person surviving potentially or not. Uh, and I don't just mean physically, but psychologically surviving, you know, what is, really in situations of coercive control tantamount to a type of torture. Why, why should we understand this if we haven't been through it or if we don't know someone, we don't think we know someone who's been through it? Um, because it is absolutely core to our human experience. And it's fundamental, um, this whole thing of how we manage intimacy, how we manage family relationships. It's absolutely core to, to the function of society and to our lives. And I just feel, you know, I'm five years plus into this research and writing about domestic abuse. And I continue to be obsessed and fascinated by it because every single day I learn something new. And it is literally like this bottomless Mary Poppins bag where you're just like, there is no end to this. <laughs> and the understanding keeps deepening and developing. It keeps enhancing my own life, my relationship with my daughter, with my husband, with my family, with my friends. I'd say just don't be afraid of it. This is fascinating and it's not grim or, or maudlin or voyeuristic to be interested in it. Um, this is just the stuff of life and we should all know a lot more about it. Talking with Jess was an amazing opportunity to dive further into the human condition. 
When we break apart what's happening in these homes where things like violence and narcissism occur, we're able to break down how we might be able to find better solutions in our families, in our communities, in the judicial systems, and on a social level. I'm also a believer that if you can take the substance around domestic abuse and domestic violence and understand it, you can apply this to larger communities, cities, and perhaps even nation states when it concerns power, tribalism, and our human relationships. So I hope that this episode was interesting to you. I hope that there was something you could latch on to that you can take into your conversations going forward today and this week. I know it's a lot of heavy material. Again, if you are someone who has survived domestic violence and you are struggling or you are in a situation where you do not feel safe, please call someone, maybe a friend, maybe a family member. I will include the national domestic hotlines in the description notes that you can also reach out to. We need to be able to change the story around domestic violence. There will be much more around these things to come, and I hope that you'll stick with us. May you live and move and have your being. Cheers.